0: You have your Bibles. Turning them to Mark chapter six. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture we'll be looking at is in your bulletin inside. Um, today we're going to be taking notes on the front cover of the bulletin because there's no room in the end. Um, before we get to the the passage that we're going to read, though, I, I want to just remind you of what we're doing now and why we're doing this. Especially for those of you who are new, um, we're we've begun a series. It's called Revolutionary King. Um, Mark, what we're looking at is Mark's gospel, and Mark wrote this. This is the earliest biography that we have of Jesus. And Mark writes, and what he writes is good news about a God who loves the world, and he came into the world to show the world just how much he loves us, and he came in order to be the leader that we all need. Okay, Um, Leaders are a huge part of our lives. Okay, You might not really think about how many people you look to for leadership, but all of us do. We all look uh, at leaders, um, some leaders we choose, and some leaders we don't, okay? We have leaders at work that we report to. Uh, we also have leaders in politics, some who represent, we think, the best expressions of our ideas about how the government should be run. Um, some leaders uh, express opposite opinions on how we think the government should be run. Um, we have leaders in the hobbies that we enjoy, Right, There are blogs, there are articles, there are books that we read, and we really submit ourselves to the leadership of other people as we learn from them. We enjoy their ideas or their insights into the kinds of things that we do in life. Um, And so we pattern our lives often after the leaders that we read and respect. Now, my experience has been, I'm sure this is experience for you too, is that leaders both inspire us and also frustrate us. Right, we have some leaders that make us better people, because we know the reason we follow them is because they make us better people. Right, we want to be like them. Right, and then we have other leaders who, man, we just wish they weren't part of our lives at all. Right, um, I've had leaders at work that have made me literally want to rip my hair out of my skull and shove it down there. Oh man, like I've just had really awful experiences. With leadership um, in the past, and um I know that my experience is not uncommon. And so I want you to think about the kind of leaders that have inspired you. You know, what kinds of leaders have frustrated you? Think about that a little bit. Um because Mark is writing this gospel and specifically this section of his gospel, trying to say, you need to know King Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the kind of king that is unlike anyone else who has authority. Mark wants you to know that Jesus is truly a revolutionary king. No one leads like he does. And I want you to know the kind of person that he is. And so um, in this series, um, I want you to see, some of you, it's going to be for the first time, and for others of you, I want to remind you of just how compelling Jesus is. Okay, Mark tells us stories, and they're not just random stories, but they are specific stories that help us get to know Jesus. Sometimes reading the Gospels is kind of like going on a blind date, right? Where you're getting to know, you're seeing Jesus. It's not exactly like a blind date, I get it, but it's kind of like you're getting to see Jesus in action. You get to see him interacting with people. You get to see what he's like. You see how he treats people. Um, And this is important for us because in our day and age, it's really difficult for us. Um, as people who live in San Diego and Southern California today to commit ourselves to someone wholeheartedly. The pattern for us in most of our lives, pretty much everywhere, is we commit with reservation, right? We'll follow you eh, unless you go and uh, I decide I don't like you anymore. Like, I'll follow you unless I find out something about you that I really don't like after all, so I'm not going to then, right? This is kind of how we are and there's a lot of reason for that because so many of us have been burned by leaders so many of us have been taught that we ought to be we ought to question we ought to hold back we ought to not fully commit ourselves and so there's a challenge for us there's a tension here because jesus calls us to completely devote ourselves to him okay jesus's call to us is for complete and total devotion he wants us to follow him and to obey him in everything and a lot of us are like, well, like, so far so good, but how do I know I'm not going to learn something? In fact, I've heard so many things about Jesus. As I've come to this church, like, I'm not hearing that. I'm seeing Jesus a little differently, but how do I know I'm not going to find out something in a year or two? Like, how do I know enough, right? People go through the same thing when they talk about getting married. Like, well, is, do I really, Is this, do I know this is the right one? Do I not, right? This is the tension that we feel. And so Mark is presenting Jesus because he wants us to see that if you are willing to commit yourself into his hands, then you are in good hands. That's Mark's point here. He wants to show us what Jesus is like. As Jesus treats people in these chapters, so he will treat us. And I want you to be drawn to follow Jesus with all of your heart because of what a compelling and amazing and revolutionary person He is. That's the point. That's what we're doing here in this series. It sets us up to be able to see Mark chapter 6 today. But before we look at the verses, I also want you, the other thing I want you to have as your pastor, I want you to have a deeper conviction about who Jesus is so that you would feel confident enough to brag about Jesus to other people. I want you to know truths about Jesus, both from what you see in the Bible and from what you experience in your life so that you'd be proud of Jesus. You would tell other people what it's like to walk with him, what it's like to know him, what it's like to be in a relationship with him. And so I also want you to feel a conviction in your heart that you'd be willing to gently correct other people's wrong views of Jesus. Okay, so that if you're in a conversation you hear somebody say something negative about Jesus that frankly isn't true, that you would not argue with other people but that you could offer stories from the scriptures, stories from your own lives, that would be able to help people know what Jesus is really like. Okay, like that's the point, that's the goal of this series is, and we're going to see that, uh, a piece of that today. What we're going to see today is that Jesus brings a revolution of kingly service. Okay, you want to know the kind of leader Jesus is, the kind of king Jesus is? He is a king who serves. Okay, Jesus brings a revolution of kingly service. In Mark 6, Mark shows us more of Jesus' leadership, and he does it against the backdrop of other kinds of leadership. This chapter shows Jesus' leadership over and against the leadership of Herod the king. And so let's read this together. We're going to read Mark 6, verses 1 through 44. Um, It's a long passage, but I don't apologize for that because you really need to see this. I want you to see there's sort of two groups of people here. There are people who reject Jesus' authority and then people who follow Jesus' authority. So, Mark 6, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. He, that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us here? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But... An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. So again, I know that was long, but really there were just two things going on. you got people who reject Jesus, and then you have the twelve sent out. And then you have the story of Herod, who has rejected Jesus and kills John the Baptist. And then you have Jesus feeding his followers. Okay, And so that's what we're going to look at today. We've got people who reject Jesus and people who follow him. First, I want to look at sort of the two groups, the two passages where people reject Jesus. So verses 1 and 6 they show Jesus going back to his hometown. And as he comes, people have heard of him, they begin to he goes he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and begins to teach. And verse 2 has what seems like very honest astonishment. Right, hey wait, wait, we know this guy. We know this guy. And wait wait, and he's teaching. He's teaching us, right? Where did he, where did this man get this wisdom? Where does this power come from? Right? How is he doing all of this? So verse 2 seems like honest astonishment. They're like, whoa, we didn't know you had it in you. Like, this is incredible. But then verse 3, um, verse 3 shows that they're underneath these questions. Underneath this astonishment is a cynicism um, and a rejection underneath their questions. Right, look what they say in verse 3. They say, isn't this the carpenter? what are they saying here? Well, um, we kind of need to piece this together. It seems like because the verse tells us they took offense at him, I think this is sort of a, a little bit more of a veiled description of people who are finding excuses not to believe in him, okay? And so this idea of, isn't he the carpenter? What they're saying is, he doesn't have any training. He shouldn't be speaking for God. What the heck is he doing? He's a carpenter, Right? This would be like if you go to the emergency room because your arm is gushing blood and the guy who's pushing um, a, a trash can, he puts down his mop in the trash can, he walks in, he pulls out of his back pocket his tape measure and he begins to measure the gash that's in your arm. Right, and You're like, wait a second, <laughs> what is this? Right? This is, this guy shouldn't be here. He shouldn't be doing what he's doing. He's the janitor. Right? And so that's what they're saying. Isn't this the carpenter? He doesn't have training. And they go on. Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, this could be a reference to the fact that at this point in Jesus' life, his father Joseph was dead. Um, We don't see Joseph um, at all in the gospel narratives after Jesus is 12 years old. And so it's possible that now Jesus is known as the son of Mary, but that's really very different. It's not how normal Greek, it's not how the the normal um, Hebrews would have spoken back then. They would have still said, this is Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph. And so for them to say, this is the son of Mary, this is probably a backhanded slap in the face, implying that Jesus was illegitimately conceived. Okay, And you see this in other parts of the Gospels where the religious leaders come out and go, yeah, Jesus, well, we weren't born of fornication. And what they're saying is, yeah, we heard the story. Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we get it. And so when they say Jesus, isn't this Jesus the son of Mary? They're saying, yeah, we know he didn't have a father when he was conceived. We know he didn't have a real dad. They weren't married. And so this was them putting Jesus down. Um, We know his brothers. We know his sisters, which I think hopefully should help all of you to realize that though Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived, she didn't stay a virgin. Okay? Jesus had many brothers and at least two sisters. Okay? And so, but... We know these people, like they're with us. They're nothing special. And so if, the people, if his brothers and sisters are nothing special, then surely Jesus isn't anything special. And so they reject Jesus. They reject Jesus. And what's, what's amazing here is that they knew about his wisdom because they heard it. They knew about the miracles that he had done, and they still rejected him. What was going on here was that there was a layer of cynicism that was clouding their hearts. It wasn't that they couldn't believe. They were unwilling to believe that Jesus could be anything special. They were unwilling to believe. And what happens? Well, the text tells us, verse 5, Look at this, look what it says. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, Jesus, marveled because of their unbelief. And so there is a danger in rejecting Jesus. There is a danger in allowing your cynicism to keep you from embracing Jesus for who he says he is. And the danger, as verse 5 points out incredibly clearly, is that if you let your cynicism be your king and not Jesus, you will prevent God from working in your life. If you allow your cynicism to cloud your ability to accept and put your faith in Jesus, God will be unable to work in your life. I mean, that's what verse 5 says. Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. So this is what happens. You know, skepticism and cynicism, they can be healthy, right? It's foolish to just receive everything. Um, In fact, even in the book of Proverbs, when it talks about the simple Um, The word simple in the book of Proverbs is just the person who is open, right? Open to everything, right? Someone who has no ability to discern what's right and wrong just sort of receives everything, right? Very naive, very simple. that's, That's not wise. It's not wise just to be open to everything. But it is possible to let your cynicism call into question everything to the point where really nothing is real. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that if you allow the, the lenses of cynicism to govern your life and you make it your God, you will end up seeing through everything in life and nothing will be real. And so for us, i want to ask the question, how does your cynicism keep you from experiencing God in your life? Sometimes, anytime there is good news, yeah, but, right? Anytime something good happens for somebody else, yeah, but. Anytime something good happens for you, yeah, but, right? And there's always excuses, and those things can distance you. I mean, the way I like to think about cynicism is that oftentimes cynicism is, 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 is well-founded, and there's a reason, there's a justification for cynicism. And so sometimes cynicism is true, but normally it's not the whole story, okay? Just because you can be cynical doesn't mean that God isn't real, that Jesus isn't doing miracles, that Jesus isn't teaching and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And I think what we see here too, and again, this is a warning, is that Jesus doesn't force himself onto people that unbelief can actually push God away. I think it's possible that these folks from Jesus' hometown from Nazareth, they might have been distancing themselves because they were worried about the impact that Jesus' ministry would have on Herod the king. I think there's a reason why Herod's story shows up um, in this same chapter Back in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, um, in verse 6, it says after Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so I think the people in Nazareth knew that if Jesus got too big and you were on his side, Herod was coming and Herod was powerful. And so their rejection of Jesus may have been motivated by a fear that they were afraid of what might happen if Herod uh, were to come and want to put Jesus down. And so these are people um, whose cynicism has kept them, kept them from experiencing God. And I think that this gets even bigger and in some ways more personal I think when we zoom in on King Herod, um, later on in the chapter. And so let's look at that next. Um, the scene with King Herod, um, verse 17 is, uh, tells the story of what Herod did to John the Baptist. Um, and I don't want to go over again, all the details, but Herod throws a party, right? He throws a party and he has, um, he has his, uh, his, his guests there, um, It says that in um, in verse twenty one, on his birthday, he gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And so these were this was a party of the people. Galilee was up in the north. Herod's palace was down in Jerusalem, so he invites them down. Um, So they're there. And Nazareth was up in Galilee as well. So again, you see that there's a geographical connection there. But Herod throws this party, and I need to tell you so that Herod was a fake Jew. He was the king of the Jews at the time, but he was a fake Jew. He was a puppet king. Caesar appointed Herod. Herod was Roman, okay? So he was part of the Roman Empire, and his leadership over the over the nation of Israel really smacked of Roman influence, and Herod was hated by most of the Jews because he wasn't truly a Jew, okay? Well, Herod brought all of the... Um, let's say, values or lack of values of Caesar's empire. And for someone who had as much power as Herod had that was relatively unchecked. Um, let me just give you some bits and pieces of, of Herod and his family. This Herod that we're talking about is the son of another guy. And the other guy's name was Herod. And so you have Herod who has a son and names him Herod. Well, there was another son that daddy Herod had, And his name was also Herod. Um, And so you can see some of, uh, I think George Foreman did this too. Um, So now (laughs) what's funny is that, so you have Herod in our story, Father Herod, and then you have Brother Herod, right? Um, Brother Herod gets married to a woman and her name becomes Herodias, because it's not good enough that my sons bear my name, but my daughters-in-law also need to bear my name. So, ladies, if as you're getting to know that guy, right, you meet his parents, and all of a sudden the dad says, hey, you know what, how do you feel about your name? Just be careful. Just be careful. Um, so Herod has an ego. Um, and uh, more than that, and so obviously the father's ego breeds into the kids. And this Herod, Herod who's in the story, actually verse 17 tells her that the reason that Herod actually has John the Baptist in prison is because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. But wait a second, hold on. No, actually, it's not his brother Philip's wife. It's his own wife now. So sister-in-law is now wife. And so Herodias goes from being married to Herod, from being married to Herod, to now being married to Herod. Um, this feels like a Kardashian kind of television show. Um, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. So Herodias had a daughter. The daughter's wife. The daughter's name was not Herodias. Okay, so that's good. The daughter's name was Salome. We find out in other places. Um, Salome was a young girl, young teenage girl. What all of the scholars say is that the word that's translated to dance, okay, in verse 22, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, um, every every scholar says that this was an erotic dance, that this was sexual in nature, and so it adds some layers and some color to the rest in the end of verse 22, when it says she pleased Herod and his guests. Um, but you, you kinda need to step back for a second, cause I, I know for some of you the idea of erotic dancing might not be shocking, but you have to remember this is now his daughter-in-law, half-daughter, stepdaughter, that's, that he's having dance, that he's having, so, And I go into this because I just, I want you to understand the nature of the kind of leadership that characterized the Roman Empire, okay? It is really important, I think, for you to understand this because while we do have sexual misconduct that takes place in all levels of our own government today, this is, God, (laughs) well... This It's not this flagrant. It's not this debauched. It's not this disgusting at this point in time. I think some people are pushing the envelope. Um, but that's what happens when you have leadership where there's no check. When you have leadership, when you have rulers, and there's no one who is checking their leadership, this is the kind of thing that happens. And so because of this, because of what happens, Herod makes this promise, and he doubles it with a vow. He puts himself on the line because... He's probably drunk, um, and he wants to impress his guests, right? This is a show of hubris for Herod to promise this girl who danced for them to give her whatever she wants, and he basically digs himself a trap because he's got this issue. He's got conflicted with John the Baptist, right? He's got to have him in prison, but he, he really kind of likes him, right? He likes, he hears him gladly. Like there's something about John's preaching that is attractive to him. We don't know what it is right? But he's perplexed, the text says in verse 20. Um, he doesn't know what to do because he likes what John the Baptist says, but what John the Baptist says also is that, guess what, you're in sin and you're heading for a really bad place if you keep going in this way. And so he's stuck, but Herodias, along with her daughter, conspire to execute John the Baptist. And so that's a little bit of detail on this story, but what I want you to see is that this in some ways, this is the alternative to the kind of leadership that Jesus brings, okay? Jesus brings a revolution of kingly service, as we're going to see here in a minute. But without Jesus, when you reject Jesus, what you end up with is an authority of your own making. You end up the one who's in charge, and you end up deciding who is in charge of your life. And when you realize that, when you understand that you're the one who's in charge and you're the one who gets to call the shots and you get to decide who's right and who's wrong, what can happen is that Herod can become what we become. Or Herod can be. The way Herod is can be what we're like. Herod is swayed by, I mean, he's swayed by his own desires, Right, Herod's at a place now where he is doing things and he's living above the law. Um, Herod's at a place where he is excusing himself and all of his behaviors. Friends, we do the same thing. Like we are so quick to want to put other people in prison, to criticize other people, and yet when it comes to our own stuff, we're quick to justify ourselves. We're quick to uh, to explain away what we do. Um, we're quick to making rash vows. Right? We make promises, we get caught, and instead of fessing up, instead of saying, oh man, you know what? Let me tell you about my relationship with John the Baptist. I'm not willing to put him to death. You can have anything else. Instead, Herod doesn't want to look bad, and his reputation is more important to him than his integrity. And he wants to please his friends more and do what they want more than he does what's right And in the midst of all of this, what's what's so fascinating to me about where the story is placed is that the reason that Mark puts this, or the introduction to this story, is verse 16. When Herod heard of what Jesus was doing, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And I think that what we're seeing here is that Herod hears something, and where does he go? He goes immediately to his own guilt. Herod has been living with the guilt of what he did. And so he immediately, his immediate reaction is, oh my goodness, like this is, this is what I did. Like he's come back. He's come back to haunt me. He's come back from the dead. And I think this is what happens to us. This is what happens to us. Um, Our sin never really goes away. Uh, When we live for ourselves and we are our own king, when we allow cynicism, when we allow the the approval of other people, like we might get their approval. They might think we're the greatest thing ever. But we know what we've done. We know where we are. We know how we stand before God. But these are the kinds of leaders that we end up with uh, when we reject Jesus. And so I want you to see now, on the other hand, I want you to see what Jesus does. I want you to see his leadership. It starts in verse 7. It says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And so this is Jesus now. He's had the 12. They've been with him. They've learned from him. They've been watching him. They've seen what he's done. They've heard him teach. And Jesus says, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. This is what happens when you believe in Jesus. When you accept Jesus' authority, when he is your king, Jesus will build you up and strengthen you and then send you out. And so he sends them out two by two. It's always good to go with someone else. Like when you're going to go out and do ministry, it's good to have someone with you, right? Two heads are better than one. You can learn from each other in the process. I think for them, there's also safety involved. Um, there's also, I think, a theme in the Bible that uh, of the testimony of two witnesses um, that I think Jesus is picking up here as well. Um, and so Jesus sends them out, and he sends them out in a way where they're going to have to trust God and the community to provide. In verses 8 and 9, he says, no extra provisions. God's going to provide for you through the people that you serve. Right. So you're going to serve them, and they're going to provide for you. And so the big picture here is that when you believe in Jesus, when you trust Jesus' authority and make him your king, Jesus gives you a mission. He invites you to live on his mission, okay? When you follow Jesus, he will work in your life to make you like him. And then he gives you this incredible privilege. He gives you this incredible privilege where he's going to train you and work in you so that you would be able to help other people to know who he is, and what it's like to live for him. Um, yesterday, I was on a bike ride with Ryan, um, and he's like, "Dad, why is your bike seat so high?" And I said, "Well, it's a lot easier to pedal if your bike seat's high, you know because you're not like you lift your legs up so high, you're kind of just, you're just standing up every time. And he goes, And so he goes, "Well, I want my bike to ride higher, so it's easier for me." I'm like, all right, so we pull over to the curb and I raise up his bike seat. And off he goes, and I'm like, all right, you got to be careful when you stop to make sure you come off your seat because you're not going to be able to reach the ground because you're going to reach the pedals, you know. And and, uh, and so like 30 seconds later, he goes, Dad, this is so much easier. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, yeah. And then a few seconds later, he goes, this. He says, Dad, this is out of nowhere. He's never ever said this before, but he said, Dad, I can't wait when I grow up to tell my kids about this. I was like, like, he's never said that before. Like, when I grow up, I want to teach my, I mean, that's never, ever happened. But he was so excited. He was so excited that, like, he wanted to tell somebody else about this. He wanted, and he was like, my kids! (laughs) In 20 years, you know, who knows? Down the road. And, um, and so, friends, like, this is how it is with Jesus. This is how it is with Jesus. He teaches us. He works in our lives. And then he helps us grow to the point where we can share what we've learned and what we've experienced with others. He wants us to be able to tell other people what he's done for us. Because what this does, this creates in like an ethos or an aura of service in our lives. And that aura of service creates a revolution. It creates a revolution. Because this is what they were doing. They went out, verse 12, and proclaimed that people should repent. Right, What they were doing was they were saying, hey, y'all, our lives have been changed and transformed. And if you would turn back to Jesus, everything in your life will change too. Jesus is renewing us. We've learned from him. He's actually teaching us the best way to be human beings in God's world. He's showing us this good news that it's not about us, but it's about him. It's about what God is doing to rescue us. And we don't have to earn our way back to him. He accepts us just as we are you got to turn and you can experience this too. And they do these miracles and they cast out demons. They are setting people free because they have the authority and the power of Jesus. Friends, we have this power too. When you trust Jesus, if you are a Christian today, then you have the power and the authority of Jesus. You can help other people to know who he is. Now, our power doesn't come in the form of, hey, come up if you're sick and I'll touch you and you'll be healed. I mean, healing does happen at times when we pray, but that's not the way that Jesus's power is normally um, put, you know, that normally goes through us. But I think it's an even greater miracle that, that, that we have. And that's the life, it's the miracle of a renewed life. It's the miracle of a renewed life. It's lives that are caring and understanding. It's lives that are motivated by forgiveness and love where you understand people and so you treat them not necessarily the way they act, but the way they mean, right? Where you can look through what people say, understand what they mean and love them as they are, right? This kind of forgiveness uh, of care, where we are courageous and we're bold, it's when we live these kinds of lives, that's when we show the power of Jesus at work in us. And that creates in us an ethos of service that creates a revolution. It actually makes people ask, man, who the heck is this? Right, that's what goes on in verses 14 to 16. They're arguing over who is Jesus, right? What's going on here? Well, it's John the Baptist. No, it's a prophet. No, it's Elijah. No, it's... And I mean, the question of like, who really is this after all is a question that Mark is wanting us to ask that he isn't going to answer until toward the end of chapter 8. And so you kind of have to hold on to that question, but that's what it will, it will happen as you serve people with this kind of supernatural love and power. This is the impact that you're going to have in your workplace. This is the impact that you'll have in your home, with your family, with your neighbors, with your friends. I mean, I'm talking about real love, not just sort of a gushy feeling, but a commitment to serving the people around you. Right? This is what Jesus does He serves the 12 to empower them and equip them to send them out. He does the same thing for us. He does the same thing for us. And we see that in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Here, after telling us about Herod, who's a king that no one wants, Mark goes on to show us this revolutionary king. While Herod's building his life around himself and his own pride and his own desires and his own needs, Mark shows us Jesus. Because in verse 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And what was his response? He had compassion on them. Herod didn't care anything about anybody except himself. But Jesus saw the crowds and cared for them. He saw them as He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says, I want to be your shepherd. I want to be your shepherd. And so he begins to teach them. And then he provides for them their daily bread, right? Seven months wages. That's 200 denarii, 200 days worth of work. That's seven months wages to feed 5,000 men plus the women and the children. Some estimate it could have been 15 or 20,000 people in this crowd, try to feed them. Yeah, it would take seven months wages to feed that many. And you see these neat literary hints. Um, they go to a desolate place in verse 31. But then look now in, um, in verse uh, 39, it says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Did you see that when we read it? The green grass. This is, a this is I think, a quote of the image from Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me into green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. So what we have here is Jesus meeting his people in the desolate places, and he's turning their desolation into a pasture into flourishing and abundance. That's what this miracle is. Jesus is saying, look, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, and yet I can turn this place into a location where you are nourished and fed. And so he gives them food, and not just some food, but he takes these five loaves and these two fish And I don't exactly know how it works, but he starts breaking them up and he's giving them. He's giving them out. He breaks it and it just never, ever stops. It just, he never gets a night. I don't know if he broke one and broke one and broke. And it just, it just kept coming. It just kept, it was a miracle until all 5,000 plus were fed. And it says, verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. And then they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Like these are big old tubs, big old tubs of broken pieces and the fish. And so this just highlights the fact that everybody ate to the full, and this is what was left over, more than they started with. Um, the image here of the 12, this isn't a coincidence. I mean, what Jesus is doing here, one basket for every one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one basket for every one of the 12 disciples, this is Jesus rebirthing Israel. This is Jesus starting the people of God over. And he's bringing renewal. Friends, this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. He uses his power. He uses his authority to care for sheep who need a shepherd. And he does this for us. He does this for us. I mean, he offers them bread here. But this is just a foretaste of what he's going to offer. In nine chapters, Jesus is going to offer his own life. He's going to give not just bread from someone else, but he's going to offer his life as bread for the world. And He feeds us with his life and his death and his resurrection. Friends, so that when you trust in Jesus, he doesn't necessarily give you food to eat, but he nourishes your soul so that every day you have the presence of God and the power of God that will meet your needs. Anything that is going wrong in your life, Jesus is with you, and he reminds you that your sins have been forgiven. He reminds you that you have his presence and his strength so that you can love him and you can have his love for you. And so even if your circumstances never change, you change. You're different. Though nothing is different circumstantial in your life, everything is different because Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is your bread. And so you are forgiven. You are accepted by God. You have his presence dwelling in you, and he's changing you from the inside out. And I love the fact that the way that Jesus distributed the bread, the way that he gave out the fish, was through the twelve. Like he didn't do this by himself, but he did it through them. And this revolution of service, this kingly service that Jesus gives, always works through others. So this is what Jesus is calling us to. As he serves us, he then calls us to serve others. And he gives us the strength that we need. He gives us the assurance that we need. This... This is what helps us to let go of being anything like Herod. Being able to let go of our cynicism. We don't need to be cynical when Jesus is feeding us the spiritual truth that we need to give us the strength that we need to face our lives. So I want to call you to serve like Jesus. Because it's in serving that you will know God. It's in serving others that you will find out what it was like to be Jesus, and you'll find out how he serves you. Let's pray together. Jesus, you have served us so faithfully. Beyond bread, although that was glorious, you've given us your very life, your body, and your blood were broken and poured out for us so that we might be free. Free of our sin and free to be filled with the power of your spirit. Help us to serve Jesus this week for your sake. Amen. We have a time now in our service. We're going to receive our offering.